0: Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is
1: Believe.
0: All right, here we are, Bosco. It's uh, Thursday, December 19th, 2019. Mm -hmm. And uh, we finally hit the Trip Club. Thirty dirty thirty. Yeah, this is the Cross Pass Podcast episode number thirty. Trip club. Yeah, baby. Um, yeah, go ahead and follow us on Twitter at Cross Pass Pod. Um, send us any kind of like questions or anything like that you guys might have uh, from this episode, which is essentially just a uh, yeah. We just last week we had a extended phone interview with University of Pacific head coach James Graham. Yep. So, first things first, thanks to Coach Graham for, uh, for taking the time out of his evening last week to talk with us for a while. Yes, sir. Thank you. Yeah. Um, but uh, really quick before we get into that, the CrossFast Podcast, we are on the Believe Podcast Network, your number one sports podcast in your town. We believe in our teams. Do you believe? Do you believe in a life I could live? <laughs> um. Really quick trivia. The question last week was the top scorer in an NCAA men's championship game. Do you remember what you said? I said Kostas with six goals in whatever year he played. False. Oh. It was Balash Erdely, Mm. three-time casino award winner, dropping a seventh spot in the 2013 championship game when they lost to USC.
1: In overtime. Yeah.
0: Yeah, he had seven out of their 11 goals.
1: He was a three-time winner?
0: Yeah, he won three times in a row.
1: Damn, I yeah. did not know that. Yeah. That's pretty tight. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Holy shit. Yeah, I definitely did not know he won three times in a row. Yep. That's uh-huh. sick. Uh-huh. And it follows up with our conversation with James Graham. Yes. Yeah, he's a nice little tie-in.
0: Yeah, he does get a little mention in there. Yeah. Um So, uh yeah, and then I came up with a quick question since uh, the Men's Junior World Championship is going on right now. When was the last time USA hosted this tournament and where and who won?
1: Yeah, man. I don't know. <laughs> Take a guess. 2014 was the last time we hosted, and Italy won.
0: All right. <laughs> um, so, yeah, go ahead and uh, let us know, listeners, if you think you got the answers. Um, just really quick news and notes before we play this interview for you. Um, the USA Senior Women are playing in the Holiday Cup in Princeton. Um they, uh, they've they beaten Russia 9-5. They beat the Netherlands in a shootout 23-22. It was 18-18 after regular time there. And then they beat Canada 17-6. Uh, they'll play Italy at 4 p.m. Pacific time on Friday. And then there'll be one more game, TBA, on Saturday, assuming that they win and they'll play in some kind of championship. Um. And yeah, the women, uh, right now, they're on a 65 game winning streak. It's something like 105 and 2 losses overall since the Rio Olympics, and they're 35 and 0 this calendar year. Nice. Yep. Uh, The USA men, they started their exhibition series, a three game set with Serbia. Uh, They beat the Serbs 13 12 at Cathedral Catholic the other night down there in San Diego. Yeah, I watched
1: the first quarter and a half, maybe, of the stream. And the stream was so terrible. Really? It was so bad. Because it was dark out? Yeah, it was dark, and then the, it was just always glitching, and then there was this weird app. The camera placement was really bad. Where was it? Um, I want to say it was, like, at the desk. Interesting. Or the, And then they tried to, like, move, like, switch camera angles and stuff, but, like, there was people walking by. And then in the first quarter, I don't know if anybody else heard it that watched the stream, but there was, like, a... Like when you have a microphone too close to a speaker, uh-huh. like the, like that super oh, really? loud dude. Yeah. For like so long. Oh, like, no. I like paused it. Cause I was like, is there something in our apartment or like, <laughs> I thought it was like an alarm or like a stove or something. <laughs> and I'm like, what the hell? And it was that. And then did Dan yeah, leave the oven on? Again? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then like, yeah, it was just like too glitchy. Like I just, uh, I can't watch that. I'm gonna have a stroke or something. That's like, a bummer, yeah, yeah, I can't watch that stuff, but yeah, they won. Uh, <laughs> all right. Um,
0: And then they play at 7 o'clock Friday in Torrance, then Sunday at 1 o'clock, both times specific, in Santa Barbara. Mm -hmm. And then finally, we have the uh, aforementioned USA Junior Men's Team is at the Junior Worlds in Kuwait. Um, In Group C, they had an opening loss 18-11 to Italy. Uh, I've been able to watch because I remembered a certain somebody's FINA TV <laughs> login information. So I've been able to watch the games. Uh, I think Italy looks pretty impressive. They're, uh, playing for third tomorrow, I think. So they lost 18-11 to them. Then they beat Iran 27-4. They beat Montenegro 11-9. That was a big one. Mm-hmm. And then they beat Kuwait 16-8. to So that win against Montenegro, plus Montenegro tying against Italy, uh, got them second place in Group C. So then they crossed over with Canada. They beat the Canadians, our neighbors to the north, 12-6. And then they lost to Greece, uh, 15-12 after a shootout in the quarterfinal. It was 11-11 after regular time. Uh, I saw some some kind of like a hubbub on the Twitter sphere about like a timeout that was given to Greece when they didn't have possession. Um, I was able to go back and watch, and um, I was pretty close you know I mean like the ball went into two meters and they stole it and I mean the commentary is in whichever language that yeah, I don't I was know what language it is the other day I was like dude it, I can't and so like I don't know what the guy might have been saying about yeah. it like it's pretty unclear like he, like the whole whistles and stuff so, like I don't really know exactly what happened I'm not gonna like give a definitive opinion on that Yeah. Um, but I mean obviously huge because USA was up by one that could have been a penalty go up by two blah 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 Yeah. and then we just watched the kick out um, that also was said to be BS and um, I don't know I thought it was actually like the right call honestly because I mean Zahn he's playing two meter defense Garrett Zahn from Long Beach and like he never tried to really show his hands you know like the guy you know has his hand on, the, on his ball he like waves it away The crash, the second too late whatever I thought it was an okay kick out
1: yeah it looked like a kick out to me as well
0: yeah I mean they had 11 seconds to play five man they gave up the goal and then mm-hmm. lost 4-1 in the shootout and then um, today they lost to Spain again in a shootout, uh, this time 13-12. It was 7-7 at full time. That was in the 5th or 8th place semifinals. So they will play Japan for 7th place at 2.30 a.m. Pacific. So by the time you guys hear this podcast, that game will be over with. Um, and, yeah, so that's it for the news and notes. Um, so now we invite you to just kick back and listen yes. to uh, to this long phone interview we had. Um, just like a brief little overview of what we talked about. Of course, a lot about the NCAA championship, um, which honestly provided like a lot of clarity, I think, and educated us on the whole, like uh, like the, yeah, like the whole selection committee thing, and then how they seed the tournament and all that. Um, so I think that like really cleared the air on a lot of stuff. And then of course like the GCC's impact on the game, what it's like to coach in that conference, a lot about like recruiting and building the program, and uh, things like that. Don't want to give away too much here. So uh, anyways, kick back and enjoy. And, uh, yeah, this is episode number 30 of the CrossPass Podcast. Thanks for listening.
1: Uh, yeah, so, I mean, we're coming off a big weekend, so, number one, congratulations on a great season. Uh, you made the championship, and, I mean, short of winning it, I'm pretty sure that you're pretty excited. You got the GCC title as well, so, I mean, how are you feeling after this weekend overall?
2: Um... Kind of a mixed bag to be honest there's uh there's kind of two different ways of looking at it there's the um you know right in front of you situation which is the loss of Stanford which is really tough to take knowing that we didn't put our best foot forward in that game uh, although Stanford played very well in credit to them but at the same time there's also kind of a 30,000 foot view which is the overall season and the overall season being able to get to the national championship game, be number two, finish number two in the nation, uh, be two and zero over SC, you know, and uh, get a GCC regular season conference title—you got to be happy with all those things. So um, it, it's tough to kind of put into words. It's kind of kind of conflicted over it, but I'm uh, proud of the effort we put forth.
1: Yeah, definitely. No, I can. I understand that, too. I mean, at the end of the day, you want to win a championship, but, I mean, it's, it's hard to be mad at what you did this year.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's, that's, that's exactly it. It's like you, you want to you get those wins, and you want to fish out the season the right way, and especially in the last game. But overall, you know, it's still is, you know, the best we've done in school history, which is the second time we've been able to be the national runners up, which we obviously want to win that game, but that's still uh, a, a great job for UOP.
0: Um, so we've mentioned the Golden Coast Conference here already a couple times just how much fun was it as a coach playing in that conference I mean kind of any given day anybody could be anybody I mean just I'm sure you guys game planned a lot and all that stuff and did a lot of preparing just how much fun was it kind of going into every game almost and kind of you never really knew what the outcome was going to be against such a tough competitive conference schedule
2: yeah I mean statistically the GCC was the strongest conference in the nation this year um, as far as you know, strength of schedule and all that is concerned. Uh, so it, is, it was a really tough ske- uh, tough conference to play in uh, from top to bottom. As far as how much fun it is, um, I wouldn't really describe anything that I do as fun. <laughs> I would say I really enjoy it, um, but I really wouldn't say it's fun because it's stressful and, you know, it's hard work and all those kinds of things. But I love what I do, and being in the conference, it, I definitely enjoy being a part of this conference and competing against these great coaches and great programs. And it makes you be on your game every single day. So this conference this year was as well balanced as it's ever been. And then in addition to that, it was uh, extremely strong against the rest of the nation and the MPSF this year, which um, was a great stride stride forward.
1: Um. So like going into the season, did you kind of have an idea that the conference would be this strong? I know like Santa Barbara opened up and kind of you know, showed everybody like, oh, you know, like this is kind of for real, you know, they got those wins and then you guys came and got some really big wins. But did you kind of know that this moment was building up, like this season would be kind of an eye opener for everybody that the GCC is, you know, something to be, you know, dealt with or, or was this more of a surprise? I mean, you know your team better than everybody, but what did you think about the conference in general?
2: Well, I, I wasn't surprised that our conference was strong because I knew that. Um, and that we had a bunch of very good teams. Uh, as far as how strong was the MPSS going to be and how do we match up with them, I don't think you ever really know how you're going to match up with anyone. You just kind of look on paper and have kind of an idea of, you know, pound for pound talent on each at, on each roster. So uh, I think when those first results started to come out early in the season, they were mildly surprising just because of the idea like – Traditionally, that stuff doesn't happen, and uh, and then we were able to be pretty consistent inside the GCC against the MPSF, which is also something that hasn't happened very often. You know, we've we've had some great years where we've been very consistent, but as a conference, I don't think that we've been tremendously consistent. If we get if we get a win against the MPSF, you know, it's hard to follow it up with a second win. You know, those kinds of things. So I I think it was a little I was happy, and uh, I believe that. All these teams deserved it and worked hard and definitely had the talent, but I think I was surprised at how well we were able to be consistent because that's kind of a you know um, a tougher thing to do than to go out and get a one off win.
0: Uh, so, following up with that, uh, just how do you think the conference is going to help, like all of men's water polo moving forward? And do you think that that um, uh, do you think that you see like, do you see these teams kind of helping continue to even out the playing field with the Empit? with the MPSF and the big four and all that?
2: I mean, I think you have to understand like what happened this year in general to like cause this and it's kind of a perfect storm situation. Um, the GCC plenty had a strong group of teams and, uh, but at the same time, if you look at like some of the PAC 12 programs, the They had some unfortunate situations, and UCLA got a guy hurt at the last second, and Evan Rosenfeld, you know, a couple guys not playing on the FC's roster, and and just kind of a couple of things happened here and there. So I think that the GCC is definitely making strides forward. I I think that uh, this could end up becoming a trend, but there's a lot left to prove, and doing it once really doesn't mean you know, it's just like if you go out and win one game, you're not great after winning one game. Going out and having a strong season like we did in the conference uh, is, you know, hopeful and potential. But potential means we haven't done anything yet. We got to be able to go out and put those teams together on a regular basis. And so we'll see how recruiting goes for everybody, and we'll, uh, you know, both for our conference and the other conferences. Uh, and so it's really going to have to see how those that, stack up. But I think it's to be determined at this point.
0: Okay. Um... So given what you said about um, like a perfect storm and there's still a lot left to be done to make this a consistent thing, more of a trend year after year, um, where do you think that starts? Like, What is going to have to be done in order for that kind of end goal, if you will, uh, to come to fruition?
2: Um, well, one, uh, belief is a powerful thing. So I think a lot of our teams this season got belief. And um, and and if we can keep that and capture that and keep that in the program, that will definitely um, help our conference continue to be as strong as it is. So that's that's a critical thing. And then uh, continuing to recruit. Uh, someone once told me there's only two types of coaches: coaches that can recruit and coaches that get fired. <laughs> so we got we got to be able to go out and recruit. And you know, all of our teams. Uh, I mean, everyone's teams are losing seniors, and they got to find ways replace those and the programs that do the best job at that are going to fit up so we got to we got to find a way to get
1: that done yeah no that definitely makes sense and like kind of to hone in on the recruiting uh like you had mentioned and i think i've like read it a couple times and i mean you could attest to it you had Pavelard this year and like have had him in the program for a while and he's just like you know he's a dominant player he scores he's pretty sick lefty um how do you go about, you know, finding, you know, a player like that? Like, were you, um, like surprised at how well he did, or did you kind of know, like, by you know, his, you know, later on in his career that he'd be this much of a, you know, a scorer and somebody that could be, you know, a Catino Award finalist?
2: Yeah, when we were recruiting Luke early on, uh, we had a number of people that knew him, and uh, we were getting some really good information. And people were. Really singing his praises, so to speak, um, but you never know how that's going to exactly translate to the NC2A game. Uh, when he got here, we saw all of the raw abilities that Luke had, and he has he has amazing individual gifts. And I think what Luke really did was learn how to take those and use those for the betterment of the team, and develop his work ethic and leadership. And once we saw that kind of start to mature after about the first year or so, we knew that he was going to be a special special program, player for our program for a, a long time to come. And that happened this year as well. I mean, to me, you know, this year, I mean, there's a lot of great players out there, obviously. And I'm not trying to take any credit away, but I, to me, I feel like Ben Halleck and Luke were kind of, uh, you know, two guys that kind of separated themselves as far as really no one in the nation had an answer for them individually.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and so kind of even more hearkening on the whole recruiting thing, so you as a coach and with your program at the University of Pacific up there in Stockton, and this might be able to go for all the teams in the GCC and WWPA otherwise. Um, but like, what is your guys's kind of rec- recruiting strategy when it comes to recruiting top level players like him and the other kinds, um, like to get to go to your programs, you know, rather than them giving a try at a big four school and then maybe bouncing back or, you know, how do you, how do you, what do you guys kind of try to do to get them to come to your program?
2: Yeah, I mean, a lot of people talk about recruiting and like what people should do. And until you're in the spot and you're having to have those conversations and realize like the reality of the, each person's circumstance, you got to kind of hone in on what your niche is, right? Right and every, every program has a niche, and um, you got to just do a good job of identifying that. When you identify that, then you can start to have success. So, you know, for us at UOP, there's certain types of players and from certain locations that are just less likely to come here or more likely to come here. And what we're really looking for in a nutshell is we're looking just all over the globe. We don't really uh, – separate whether it's like from a strong water pole country or not a strong water pole country, whether it's from, you know, California or the East coast, you know, it doesn't matter to us or I come from, you know, the middle of the country and come from Chicago. Like we we're we're open to everyone and we're just looking for someone that essentially has a chip on their shoulder. Someone that has something to prove, right. Someone that has belief and wants to do something, um, bigger and, uh, try to you know shock the nation that's kind of the attitude that we're looking for in our program anyone who wants to do that we feel like they're kind of the right fit for us and that player could be from Hungary that player can be from Turkey or you know Florida
0: yeah and um, how do you go about kind of so you're taking these players from different parts of the nation different parts of the globe like you just mentioned What do you try to do or how does the program kind of function in a way to bring all those players together? You know, because there could be like language barriers, like culture barriers, things like that. Um, Then you all kind of have the one common language of water polo, right? And even within that, you know, there's people who kind of grow up being coached to play a certain way or they have a certain belief of how the game should be played. How do you kind of get all that to boil down to, you know, come out and be... Tigers water polo at the end of the day
1: yeah because like UOP is like a melting pot I feel like of water polo like you've done a great job of like Daniel said like different types of players players from all over the world and yeah like meshing that all together to ultimately get a GCC title and even reach a championship game
2: that that is um that is a real challenge you know Uh, make no mistake about it that is one of our toughest jobs not because the players make it it's just a tough job in general um, to try to get all these players to get on the same page. And especially when you come from so many different places with so many different cultures and as much as water can be a common language, um, there's very different dialects, so to speak. So what, and, and you also have to understand that like when people come from different places, they, they have a lot of their self image wrapped up in the way they've played water throughout their lives. And it's difficult to want to change that. So for us, it comes down to kind of two main things, which is one, setting a culture. Um, and like for, for when all the new players come in, that they understand how we're supposed to operate. And that's, that's a challenge every year. That's something like, honestly, in 2018, we didn't do a good job of. And we really focused really hard this off, last off season on our culture to try to change it around. And I think that's why you saw such a big jump from our 2018 results to our 2019 results. And then in addition to that kind of culture mentality and what we try to, things we try to talk about there, we also have, try to have a common language, and our common language is mathematics. So you know, we use statistics and analytics, and so to help explain why we want to do what we want to do um, from the way we train to the way we schedule to the way we practice and um, the techniques and tactics we use. And when we use that, uh, people can discuss uh, the different aspects, but, you know, the numbers don't lie. So you need to have facts to back up your argument. You can't just tell me, you know, well, I think we should do this because that's what we've always done or that's what I used to do and it worked really well. Well, tell me how it's more efficient than what we're discussing. And if you can't rationally explain it with facts, then I don't really want to hear it, nor does anybody else. So it really comes down to like making sure people you know, understand why we're trying to accomplish it and not just because I said so. All right, Everything um, we do is for a reason, and that reason is backed up with data.
0: I'm glad that you brought that up because I definitely wanted to ask you about it. Um, it seems like in recent times your program has become more and more known for using statistics and mathematics, like you said. Um, so can you just dive a little bit deeper into how exactly it is or what it is that you look at and how you use that to kind of, like you said, do your scheduling and, and build your program, look for the certain types of players that might fill in, the gaps and all those kinds of places, just things like that.
2: Yeah, I mean, honestly, we've used it in a whole host of ways. I mean, there used to be a NorCal in SoCal, um, yeah. and we stopped going to NorCal's because it was not beneficial to our program because it was kind of, set up to be biased towards the Pac-12, and we looked at it statistically and built out a model for RPI and realized that we could still have an amazing strength of schedule and great RPI without having to attend a tournament that was going to put us at a disadvantage for the Pac-12, and I think relatively shortly after that, a number of people started to see the same thing that we were seeing, and we switched over to a single tournament, the MPSF invite that was became four games over three days instead of... Four games in over two days in two different tournaments. So I think there's, we've used that in scheduling. Uh, we've used that the way we manage our athletes' health and how hard we push the guys in practice based on health scores that they have. We use it to um, make decisions on which way, which offense or defense we want to run against a particular team or, um, you know, or even how we spend scholarship money, you know, all of those areas. We try to, we try to use uh, data and come up with metrics that feel like help us make a more informed decision.
1: All right. Nice. Um, So I had a question about I've, you know, your players and your recruiting. So, I feel like you've gotten to coach uh, quite a few special players that are just like pure athletes, like pure ballers, in my opinion, like Daniel and I can playing against Balosh and him just absolutely destroying some of our teammates. Do you have like a player in mind that you've coached so far that you like in the water, you're like just kind of like, wow, when you watch them play?
2: I mean, yeah, I've had a number of them, like you said, that all have blown you know, blow me away in different ways. I mean, Balash was one of the smartest players you'll ever come across. Not, I mean, he was not just physically talented he he talented. He was brilliant. He was three, four steps ahead of the game all the time. And uh, so from that standpoint, he was just uh he was unbelievable the things he would see. And then you have players like Golan Tomaseovich and Alex Obert who are just, you know, Amazing physical pre- presence in front of the cage and what they could do with a ball and how explosive they were and the moves, creative moves they would make. You know, awesome. To yeah. Luke Cavlard's ability to see shots and uh, find lines that no one else would see is uh, crazy special. Or Alex Malkus's ability to just read shooters. So there's there's been a number of them, and we've been really fortunate over the years. I mean, I don't know what's going to happen this year, but in the last nine years, we've had five catino finalists. If, you know, if Luke manages to make it this year, we'll be six out of ten. Uh, that's pretty amazing, especially for a non-Pac-12 program to have that many catino finalists. So we've been fortunate. Hopefully we continue to do a good job at picking the right guys and be in that kind of position. But I think we also try to showcase players and do a good job at um, – taking their talent and using it for the betterment of the team and being able to put a spotlight on what they do well. I think that's important.
0: All right. Um, so kind of shifting focus back to the water pool from this season. Um, so following your guys' fourth place finish at the GCC tournament, uh, how concerned were you about getting that at-large bid for the NCAA tournament?
2: Um. Yeah, I was very concerned for sure. There's no doubt about that. I mean – The the reality of the situation is, is in 2015, you know, we got knocked out uh, in a large bid process by USC. Uh, It was very close call. You know, we had a slightly better record than SC at the time. We were one-on-one against each other. You know, we had a better RPI. They had the better strength of schedule. I mean, you can go down the line. It was like each had, you know, for everything they had, we had one thing over them, right, back and forth, and they got it. So we've been knocked out in those super close battles. It's really hard to decide who gets in. So we knew that when we looked, dropped those two games, um, you know, which was unfortunate, we just didn't put our best water pool together uh, that weekend, that we put our fate in the hands of the committee. And any time you do that, you obviously have to be concerned. Otherwise, I don't think you're very smart, right? So, um, but we also knew that we had a very good argument to get in and that it was like essentially a three-way tie out there with all of us beating each other with us being 2-0 against SC, SC being 2-0 against UCLA, and UCLA being 1-0 against us. And we all had the same number of losses. So um, we knew it was going to come down to uh, some smaller details and see who really gets in at that point in time. We felt like we had a good case, especially with uh, SC doing so well at the end of the season and us being 2-0 against a team that was hot late. So we felt like that was to our advantage. But you never know how these things go down.
1: Were you surprised to get the number one at large? Because a lot of people, you know, had said, you know, maybe you guys should be the two at least. Or, you know, a lot of people talking about maybe not even getting in. But you ended up getting the number one at large. Did that kind of take you by surprise? Or did you kind of see, like, based on everything, you kind of, you know, just checked off that that would be the case?
2: So, I mean, that's where... Uh, when people try to figure out, like, okay, hey, you know, was this a uh, just process or not, if, if you don't know how the process works, then obviously uh, there, it's easy to make conspiracy theories and have, like, these ideas of, like, how this isn't right or this is wrong, right? That's just because you're not fully informed about the process. So one of the, the way the NC2A committee works in general, which is they have a criteria, okay, and a list of criteria. It's not, it's not what they feel. They have a criteria they have to go off of. They don't have – their feelings don't come into play. And this list of criteria they go through and they check off one by one until they make their decisions, right? And once they make those decisions and they select a team and they get in, then when they finish selecting all the teams, okay, which the the conference winners get in and then the two-at-larges get in, when they pick the two-at-larges, they're not picking the number one-at-large or the number two-at-large. That's not how it is. They're picking which team should get in and then the next team that should get in. And once those teams get into the tournament, then you seed the tournament based on the teams that are in. So once we got in the tournament um, based on the teams that got selected, if UCLA got in over at FC then we would not have been the two. We would have been the three. Mm-hmm. But because FC was in the tournament, we were 2-0 and against them. We have to go above them. And we're 1-0 against Pepperdine. We go above them. And we're 1-0 against Davis. We go above them. The only team we lost to is Stanford. So we have to be the number two seed. There's no other way to seed the tournament. Not really controversial, you know, but it's only because people don't understand that the seeds aren't determined simultaneously as you're selecting the teams. You select the tournament, then you seed it.
1: Well, I think that about cleared up that answer (laughs) for a lot of people. (laughs) There we go. I mean, I know Daniel and I like knew the criteria, but I will be the first to admit I had no idea that's how it is. Like once you make it and then they seed it, I for sure thought it was you know i guess the ignorant part of me thinking it was oh they picked the you know one at large and then the two at large and that's just how it's seated but no that was great i think that's yes, going to thank you very much answer a lot of people's questions for sure yeah
2: um, yeah i mean that's, that's that's the main goal you know i mean like i mean there's a, there's a lot of A coaches that aren't totally aware of this as well you know i mean this is if people look into what the process is and what the criteria are to get selected and then you look at how the seating works if you, if you had all that information in front of you, most people, okay, would come to the exact same conclusions that the committee came to. The only way to come to other conclusions is that we're just not using the same criteria and process, right? Yeah. And so it's really not like, hey, did they make the wrong decision? The question should really be what is the criteria and what was the process? You know, because once you have that, I think then the, the decisions kind of make themselves.
0: All right. Um, so you guys did get that at large bid, and so, um you I mean you guys were obviously going to host the NC2A tournament no matter what. Um but just can you kind of talk about like how it is um like coaching in and I'm sure like it's it just has to be a whole different atmosphere right being in that tournament. The NC2A comes and they put up all their banners there's a lot more hype around it. There's you know actually a live stream that everybody can watch and stuff. I know you guys do live streams but it's not readily available all the time for everybody for every game. So just how different is it reaching even that level, of that
2: stage? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely a different feeling. It's really special. There's no doubt about it. There's nothing like playing in an NCAA tournament, nothing you do during the regular season compares to that, the energy and the emotion, um, the way the NCAA treats uh, the athletes, the banquet leading up to it. All of that kind of – all those little details make that tournament feel – uh, so special. Even my players that have played at like junior worlds and different major international tournaments comment how like there's nothing like the NCAA tournament. So it's definitely special. Uh, and us preparing for it and how it's different as far as playing, I mean, you can be in big matches before, but one of the things that the players, you know, aren't as used to, nor is the coaching staff, is playing in an environment where the crowd is going to be so loud that you can't hear each other. Right. So it's very difficult for me to direct the team in the games because of the the noise level. And so we played, you know, for over a week with uh, just crowd noise at full volume in our at our pool, you know, over our stereo system so that they could barely hear me. And uh, and that's how we practice to try to prepare for those moments so that they knew they had to look, they had to pay attention. They couldn't just wait for me to talk to them. And they had to kind of pass information along and communicate on a higher level. To be ready to be successful. And I think that, you know, that helped us to some level, but I think we just still didn't do a strong enough job in the first quarter and a half uh, against uh, Stanford to be able to get the job done.
0: Very NFL like preparation. Yeah, Atlanta
2: Falcons.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, to dive in a little bit deeper, like you said about like the crowd and, you know, the first quarter and all that, do you think that? you know, the, you know, the guys kind of felt that pressure of them being at home, you know, their friends, their, you know, families are all there, they're out there supporting. And, you know, you guys went down and, you know, kind of like gripping that ball a little bit too tight, a little bit, you know, nervous to kind of fail in front of their home crowd. Do you think that kind of took a toll throughout the game?
2: You know, I think what happened in the game, to be honest, is like, um, we, we were fine for about the first five minutes or six minutes or so in the first quarter. Um, down like 3 1, we drew a 6 on 5, called a timeout, we had a play, and then we threw the ball away um, on the pass from the goalie into the 6 on 5, which was pretty heartbreaking and a huge momentum shift because we could have gone 3 2 instead of 4 1. I mean, and if you just think about that, just even on the end score, going 12 9 instead of the 13 8, that's like a big deal, and we missed a penalty shot at the end. So you can even argue it could be like 12 10 at that point just on like two very simple moments, right? Um, and so the game was a little more competitive than it, than it felt, but when that moment happened, right, when that moment happened and we go in down four one and we made kind of an, an uncharacteristic error, that's when you really get tested. Okay. And for Stanford, they have that NCAA championship experience and those losses, you know, they're, they're not just losses. They lost last year to SC that's, that's knowledge. That's experience. We, we didn't have that. We haven't. No one on our team is returning with the t 2 championship experience. And so when that happened, our players were really wanted to get us back in the game. But unfortunately, I didn't do a very good job because I needed to get us back on the same page and get us back on just playing UIP, UOP waterfall one possession at a time and let us crawl back in the game by sticking together as a group. Instead, you know, we kind of went out and we... Some individuals got really aggressive and tried to kind of get us back in the game by themselves, and that didn't work, and it backfired on us, and then we got ourselves in like a hole that we eventually couldn't climb out of. And so, you know, that's a big lesson for me as a coach. You know, I failed us at that moment, and I need to do a better job of preparing us for when we're going to be in adversity in, in those championship moments. Um, and so we got to go back to the program and learn, you know, how are we going to deal with that? How are we going to be prepared for the next time we're in that game? Because, you know, we're going to get back.
0: So you guys have been starting John Barry and goal all year, and then um, and then you decided to go with Joey McClain, um there in the NCAA tournament, and the semifinal of the NCAAs was only his second game of the year, the championship obviously being his third. Uh, how difficult of a choice was, was that for you to make? I mean, obviously, because he hadn't really played all year, and it was – you know, just in the moment when it counts most?
2: Yeah, that I mean, it was a really hard choice. Um, Not easy at all. It's something that myself and our coaching staff really debated over for a while. Um, You know, Joey's a great athlete, but John has done a great job in the cage for us, uh, you know, and got us to that point. So it's really hard to take someone who got you there out of the cage. But at the same time, um, I think... You know, you have to look at the nc 2 championship and put yourself in the best position to win. And we felt like after our GCC uh, tournament, we needed to make an adjustment, and we need to um, not only for ourselves, but also just for our opponents playing against us. And Joey was um, finally got healthy, and we felt like this could give us a possible advantage going into the tournament. And my goal going into the NCAA championship is simply, you know, I refuse to lose because I'm afraid to make a decision. I'm here to win a championship. I'm not here to play a close game. And I'd rather get blown out than than be too afraid to make a decision and lose by one. So um, we felt like Joey could give us an advantage at that moment, but we knew that if anything went wrong, we had uh, John Barry ready to go, and we were more than comfortable putting him right back in the game. So uh, we felt like it worked out really well for us in the Pepperdine game. And uh, just wasn't – Joey started out well in Stanford, but then made a couple mistakes. And uh, then we just felt like Barry was going to do a better job, and he jumped in and played really, really well.
0: All right. Um, and so we've said it a few times on the show now, um, like about just kind of improving the NC two A tournament. I mean, at the very least, they could play out the places right or – I mean, hopefully at at like the very best, expand it to an eight-team tournament. Um, What are your feelings on this, like playing the games out? And um, do you think it's at all possible to expand the tournament, hopefully in the near future?
2: I mean, okay, it's all part of the the NCAA has the control over this. And in order to do this, for the most part, it needs to be an expansion of teams Um, in order to expand the tournament. We don't – as a water community we don't have much control over whether there's more teams or not we need so many teams in order to make a bigger tournament and that's how the NCA works um, we decided as a group that we didn't want to play out uh, the third place game and fifth place game or whatever games there may be in a tournament we would rather have a larger tournament so um, if you notice that it was a final four and then all of a sudden the place games in away and we made a bigger tournament and those were related Okay. So I would rather have the 17 tournament we have right now and 18 tournament where we had last year and not play out the place games and just a final four.
0: Got it. Yeah. You can't, you can't so, have one without the other, I guess, or you can't have both. So I think, think in,
2: in in most of the NCAA tournament, you know, basketball, whatever, lose your out. And, uh, I'm, I'm fine with that. I'm fine with that. I mean, I want to play for the championship. I'm not there to play for third place. I want the championship and, we get knocked out when we get knocked out.
1: All right. Um, yeah. So like to talk about the championship game uh, just a little bit more, uh, what is like the preparation to go into Stanford? So you guys have already, you beat them earlier in the year, correct? And so what is it like, you know, to go again and have to, you know, what's your defensive scheme around Ben? I know it's, you know, try to throw as many bodies around him as possible and, you know he's on our, uh, you know our men's national team and stuff. But what do you guys try to do to prepare? You know for a player like Ben and then his like complimentary, his partner in crime, a guy you know Tyler Abramson. And...
2: Yeah, well, um, one I'll make a small question. We weren't able to be in the regular season, I Apologize. But, yeah. Um, but you know we were close. We lost one by one. I think we lost by like, yeah. three, two competitive, two competitive games um, with them leading up to the championship. So we knew we could play with them and that absolutely Ben Halleck, uh, you know, the most dominant player in his position in NC two A's, and uh, he's for sure a superstar, so how are we going to try to deal with him? And I know that that was the, you know, question that we weren't able to solve. He tried to run uh, a number of different kind of zone looks at him um, and try to limit his time and try to force uh, some other options out in the pool to be able... To put the odds in our favor Uh, but because he's so strong and the amount of tension he draws uh, obviously that increases the quality of opportunities his teammates are going to get as a byproduct of that and you have to kind of live with that because there's really no one that can defend him one-on-one and our our feeling in that game was that we might be able to you know mildly slow Stanford down at times but realistically, we needed to, we needed to put up goals is what we needed to do. And we had only been, we had only been held to under 10 goals one prior to that game and that's in the season, which, you know, for us, you know, that's a school record and we did an amazing job scoring this year. So we really needed to be the kind of offensive juggernaut that we had been. And that's, if you look at that game, uh, I'm not as concerned about giving up 13 goals. I'm not happy about it. <laughs> But um, is really the offense that concerned me in the first half. If we were scoring goals, there wouldn't have been a, a, a very big, uh, no one would have been very concerned. So we can put up goals in a hurry. We, we do that in the first half. And then we kind of came on the second half. We won the second half. But the first half, we just weren't on offensively. And that was part of what I talked about before, which is you know, we, we got off game plan and we try to do too much stuff individually. And it just didn't work out for us. And we needed to kind of stay to be- stay together as a team because, you know, Stanford had proved, in my opinion, up until that point, that they were the best team in the nation that year. But that doesn't get them a championship because the best team doesn't win. The team that plays the best wins. And that's what we had to do is we had to play the best. And we failed at that.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, you had mentioned something, you know, about, you know, scoring goals not being a problem. And Daniel and I talked about it a number of times uh on our podcast so far about how it seems like there's been a change in the style of play where it's like you said kind of more focused on goal scoring it's like you're gonna you know allow some goals but your job is to you know just ultimately score more score more goals than the other team and I feel like in all sports right now everything is more offensive minded do you see like is that what's going on in our sport right now where you see it's more about you know scoring goals you know and really focusing on the offensive side of the ball
2: um i think it's a combination of things um one it, it definitely can have to do that with that for instance for us at uop i mean i'll just be honest we're an offensive-minded team there's a lot of defensive-minded teams out there but if you like scoring goals we're the place for you okay because we that's what we want to do we put up goals we are an aggressive offensive team we take risk and um our defense's job is to put us in position to win a game and our offense's job is to win it. So we have kind of a different mindset here at Pacific, um, where a lot of other teams, you know, they want to play games where it's, you know, six to five, you know, we want to put up goals. And we love that. Our fans love that. We feel like it's exciting. Um, it gets the energy going. So we're naturally like that. Now, the rest of the nation, I do agree, was putting up more goals is typical, giving up more goals than normal. And I think that kind of has to do with some of the strength of the offenses out there and then also just kind of how each team's defense was built and I would I would argue that uh, everybody's defense was built a little different than some other years and there were some I think each team kind of had some holes if you look back at some of the great teams in some of the years past they're like you know a UCLA team uh, you know there weren't any holes they had like three guys that could all Defense center at the international level, you know. So whether well, they had Chancellor, Miras, and DeBoe and uh, Rolsa, uh, so I mean, like you know, what are you going to do, right? Um, but this year, I think everybody had good, de- uh, you know, good defenders. But I don't know if they had like a, a complete team of all solid defenders in the pool at all the time. And I think that kind of allowed some of the scoring to go up. Plus, you know, some great scores out there as well. All right.
0: Um. So kind of um piggybacking off of that so some um, like where do you think water pool stands right now like do you, th- do you like how it is now better than it was um a while ago like do you think it's in a good spot now is there still a lot of room for improvement just what's kind of your um like analysis when you like take the temperature if you will of uh, of men's water pool in our country at the moment
2: i mean i think that it's it's Slightly improved. I think that USA Waterpole and John Abdu specifically have done a great job at promoting uh, adding waterpolo, especially at the Division Three level, which I think is going to eventually snowball into more programs being added. It's you know kind of like pushing a car that's you know dead when you first start pushing; it doesn't move very far, very fast. And then once you get it rolling, you know, then it does, and then you can really push it without much effort. So I think that they're starting that process where they're making this huge push and programs are starting to add. And I think eventually it'll start, that momentum will start building. So that makes me pretty hopeful and super appreciative of their efforts to help NCAA water But at the same time, in my opinion, for the sport to be successful, to think that we don't have to make some systemic changes is uh, crazy. I mean, everyone knows the quote, you know, if you, you know, Doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results is the definition of insanity, right? So if we don't do something different as a sport, how are we going to become more widespread, more popular, you know, more televised, whatever you want to call it? And, that, and then what that comes down to really for me is uh, our ability to have a game that is digestible to a novice fan, someone who doesn't know water polo. sport is in a good spot. I think we can continue to look to improve
0: all right um and then just kind of taking what you said and going just a little bit more on on an advanced level with it um so there's been new rules that have been implemented at the international level and then we obviously have our set of rules for nc2a and then there are certain rules that are implemented for usa water especially at the youth levels um what are your thoughts on kind of doing a better job of aligning those rules more like do you think that specifically that the new FINA rules should be implemented in the NC2A so that, you know, like players who are playing in college, there's less of an adjustment when they go and play at the international level? Or do you think that we're good where we're at? Where do you kind of stand on that?
2: Um, I think I, I stand on the cautious end of things. Uh, you know, FINA has uh, looked at a number of different rule changes and they've had a series of them over, you know, a lot of years, right? And a lot of them have, you know, come in and have left. And then some new rules come in and then they leave. And I think before we adopt the international rules, we need to see over a period of time that they have staying power. And to jump too quickly into it every time some other league uh, makes a new rule, to jump in and adopt those, I don't think is the wisest decision. We have a strong NC2A game. I think the rules are more than adequate at this moment to uh, have a great sport. I think that we need to watch and pay attention to what's happening internationally, obviously, but be patient with it, allow it time to develop, collect data on it, make sure that it is doing it's, it's achieving the objectives that they were put in to do. And once we can do that, and we have those discussions, and we can see those results, then I think it's time to sit down and then make a decision about you know should we adopt these so for me it's kind of to be determined at this point I'm not against them I just want to see them in play longer before we know whether we should make a move
0: alright okay um, and so on an individual level um, obviously you uh, you come from kind of maybe a more different background than most coaches in your position um, you came from the people's conference Axe baby let's go um you are a redlands yeah yeah and um and so just like what do you think like your journey has been like um obviously like the i don't really know i couldn't think of anybody else who like camp who comes from a division three level to go and be a high level division one coach you've obviously gotten these two national runner-ups and Tons of, tons of other accolades that we could sit here and talk about so just what has that been like for you and what do you think that could be used you know for anybody else who kind of has like the same types of aspirations kind of just to say that you know like you don't have to be like a big four product to be somebody in water polo here
2: yeah I 100% believe that right um, for me nothing's impossible there's only problems and the question is are you willing to pay the price to solve them so that's That's something that I kind of live by. Right. And coming from the Sky Act, that was a great uh, experience and education. And my coach, Tom Tom Whittemore, who just retired an amazing job. And I owe him so much um, for being my mentor. But, you know, it's not it's not where you come from. It's what you do with your opportunities. And through my path, is, you know, maybe an unlikely one, but I just kept looking for the next opportunity to meet the next top coach, to volunteer, to go out to their camps, to work with them, to have to be a part of their staff staff and just constantly find other opportunities. I was never interested in getting paid. I didn't care about any of those things. It was just can I get the next opportunity to learn? And if you if there's something that I would say that I pride myself on here at Pacific and what I think is it helps me and my program be successful is two main things. One, you got to try to outwork everybody. And two, you got to be great at learning. And and that's what we try to do. I, I don't, I don't pretend to have all the answers. I don't, I'm wrong all the time, but I adapt and I evolve and I learn constantly. And every season I become a different coach than I was last season. And that's, that, to me, is if people have that kind of attitude, it doesn't matter whether you come out of the act or you come out of the, from the East Coast and the CWPA or whether you come out of the MPSF. Those, those situations, I think, will give you a chance to be successful in any route you want to go. So those, those people out there that are coaching in junior college or, you know, are out of act school or high school, you can do anything you want to do. It's just a question of, you know, how hard are you willing to work? What price are you willing to pay?
1: spoken like opinion. a true skyac alum <laughs> yeah go. let's go um so to build off that you talk about next opportunity and daniel and i have discussed it on the pod a couple times now about our men's national team and you know your name has gotten thrown around is that something that you know you're working for i mean obviously coach you is there now and you know for the foreseeable future but is that a goal of yours to be you know our national team coach
2: yeah, I mean, obviously, Dayon's there and he's doing a great job. And, uh, you know, I got a couple of players playing for him. And they're, they're enjoying the process and we, we're wishing them the best of luck. But, yeah, I mean, any way I could ever help the national team, I've always wanted to help the national team. You know, I ran data for them for a number of years. Uh, you know, I went out and coached World University games. If they ever felt like my skill set would benefit them, I would be happy to be involved in whatever capacity, whether it's uh, coaching a national team, being an assistant, being someone who runs data for them, you know, uh, or helping some of the younger groups. So I've always wanted to help uh, the United States try to win a gold medal. I think that's a dream of a lot of people. That's been my dream ever since I've been young, to find a way to help an Olympic team um, in any capacity. And I'm not really, you know, I'm not – you know, hey, this um, I'm only interested in this type of way. I I, I just like to help, and so I've had the great opportunity to do that in the past, and uh, hopefully I'll continue to have other types of opportunities in the future. But uh, right now, I'm just wishing the best as they prepare for Tokyo. Team's looking good, and I'm excited to see these Serbia matches coming up.
0: Right on, um, and I know you probably haven't even had a chance to breathe, but getting ready for the women's season now, right? You guys, you guys just released your
2: women's schedule today.
0: Yes, we did. So just
2: – Yeah, so uh, – Are you ready? <laughs> teams, yeah, going right around the pipe. We don't really take a break off – take a very big break. Um, so for us, uh, this year, you know, we're going to redshirt uh, a number of our key players. And so uh, we're going to try to make a, a, a go at it uh, the following year. So um, we're redshirting a number of top players. Part of that is due to the Olympic year, and we have a few – uh, a few of our players on our team going and trying to make the Olympics. So that's, that's really exciting. And we we want to be in support of that as a program. You know, We've had a number of players play in the Olympics, have Olympic aspirations, and we're a program that supports that fully. And so when they have those opportunities, 100% go and do it. And then when we looked at that happening, we felt like it was best for us to save uh, a couple of our top players that were seniors from graduating and bring them back one more year right. later. And they all, agreed to do that which is um you know pretty amazing that you know they were willing to put off their education graduating for another year come back and have make one more run altogether. so uh this year we're going to be playing kind of a younger crew it's going to be uh you know mostly our second and third group from last season there's some real talent in that group and we're excited about seeing them build and develop as players and then that taking that and hopefully competing for a GCC championship this year, trying to get into NC as and using that experience with those younger players and adding that back in the following year uh, when all of our red shirts return and having a not only a talented team but a very deep team as well. So um, I'm really excited about this women's next two years and this is this you know it all starts here in January.
0: Yeah, I think uh, that was a really good point. I think this this upcoming women's season is going to be really interesting, top to bottom, just because of what you said. There's going to be tons of top-level players uh, missing out because of the Olympics for this Olympic year. Um, but, hey, that's all the questions we have for you, Coach. Uh, thank you so much for your time here tonight. Really appreciate it. Um, you're doing a great job up there at Stockton. And, uh, yeah, we look forward to uh, talking to you in the future, covering your team, and uh,
1: hopefully continuing to promote our great sport. Yeah, and congratulations on a great season. Well deserved.
2: Thank you guys very much. I really appreciate you doing the podcast. This is good for water polo, and uh, I enjoy listening to it. So wish you guys best luck. Happy holidays.
0: Thanks, man. You too. Thank you.